Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good afternoon. My name is Becky Norton Dunlop. I'm the Ronald Reagan Distinguished Fellow here at the Heritage Foundation, uh, and I'm delighted to invite those of you who are here with us today. Uh, thank you for being here, and to thank those for, uh, who are watching on the on the television and on the Heritage website uh, for joining us today for what I think will be a very interesting discussion. Uh, you know, the Heritage Foundation is a 501c3 which only means the IRS has designated that code for those of us who are education and research foundations so that we can get tax-deductible money. Lots of foundations give money. Heritage receives money. The reason I mention that is because it's a very important concept when you're thinking about the establishment of foundations. What is the purpose of the foundation uh, what is the intent of the people who set up the foundation? And today's program is for people who have money to give to organizations and causes that they support. They can do this individually or they can do it through a foundation that they've established. It's also for people who plan to have money to give to causes they support. And the third group, I would say, is it's for people who are interested in knowing the lessons of history. So we don't repeat failures, but we learn to replicate successes. We want to learn what history teaches us. Our author today, Martin Morris Wooster, has updated and produced a fourth edition of the book, which he's going to talk to us about today, How Great Philanthropists Failed, and you can succeed at protecting your legacy. For the three groups that I talked about, this is very good and important information. Those of us in the nonprofit sector who support the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional values, and a strong national defense, we look at some of the great foundations that have been established to give money. And we know that they were established by some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world. They established these foundations to carry on the values that they held dear. And we look at these great foundations and we wonder, what happened? What happened? Successful entrepreneurs and business leaders like J. Howard Pugh, Andrew Carnegie, Henry Ford, and John D. Rockefeller. People who made great successes in the free enterprise system. They established foundations to carry on the values that they believed in, that they held dear, that they lived their lives to advance. Today, well, their foundations champion none of the values that they held dear. Martin is going to help us understand why this is so and how to learn from these experiences. Uh, Martin Morris Wooster is a senior fellow at the Capital Research Center. He is sitting directly here to my left, and he will be making remarks. And Scott Walter is the president of the Capital Research Center, and he will be carrying on a conversation with Martin after his formal remarks are concluded. Martin is, the, is, a, is a prolific author. He's written books. He writes articles and commentaries regularly, which appear in prominent places like the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Washington Times, 
the American Spectator, and I could go on, but I, I won't because there are many other places where his work has appeared. He's a commentator. He speaks regularly at conferences on these topics. Uh, he's been an editor, so he has a great deal of expertise and skill at not only doing the research, but then providing it to us in a way that will be useful information to us. So, Martin, we're delighted to welcome you to the Heritage Foundation to discuss this new uh, uh, edition of your great work and to help us understand how can we learn from the mistakes of the past. Thanks very much for being here. Martin Morris Wooster. Um, thank you for having me. Um, and I do my own, all my own research, too. I've never had a research assistant at all goes through my eyeballs, so. Um, okay, I have written something. I said thanks to the Heritage Foundation and Becky Norton Dunlop for inviting me to talk about my book. I thought I'd discuss why I wrote the book, the reaction to it from the Press and Large Foundations, and why this book matters. Uh, my book is about donor intent, or what happens when you set up a foundation and what happened to the foundations when the donor dies. The book's origins began in 1989, when Tim Ferguson, who was at the time the op-ed page of the editor of the Wall Street Journal, saw a piece I had written for the Capital Research Center's publications, Alternatives and Philanthropy, about the Ford Foundation, and asked me to write about what happened to the fortunes of Andrew Carnegie and John D. MacArthur. It was a great idea, and if it had not been for Tim Ferguson, I would never have written about donor intent. In 1993, I was looking for a project. I had a meeting with the Capital Research Center's president, Willa Johnson, who worked for Heritage in the 1980s before she started CRC, and suggested that I write something about donor intent. She thought the book would be a good idea, and I left the meeting with a contract. I was drawn to the history of philanthropy for several reasons. I was a history major, and I like reading big books with stories about the past. I understand in the publishing industry these are called uncle books, or the books your uncle reads. I'm also a libertarian, and so I like reading about heroic entrepreneurs who created large fortunes. And it's not that large a leap from business history to foundation history. But I also believe the primary task of the historian is telling stories. I've read a fair amount of philanthropic history, and the primary problem is not political bias, I can filter that out, but that the authors pile on meaningless jargon to let their peers know that their work is serious and important. Professors who do this get tenure and other benefits, but they don't have many readers. My book was first published in 1994, and it appeared in expanded editions in 1998 and 2007. Uh, the three previous editions were called The Great Philanthropist and the Problem of Donor Intent. Over the years, journalists understand that I know a lot about the history of some foundations. I don't know the history of all foundations. Buy me a beer and I'll tell you the story of the 45 minutes I once spent with a Los Angeles Times reporter explaining that I didn't and still don't know anything about the history of the Heinz Endowment. But here are two stories. In 2000, I talked to a writer for Worth Magazine who began the interview, quote, I thought your book was some sort of diatribe. But it was reasonable and interesting. Well, gee, thanks. Uh, he then very much wanted me to say that the heads of the Pew MacArthur and Ford Foundation should be flogged for their violations of donor intent. I refused to provide the red meat he was looking for. And the only mention of me in the story was, quote, in his well-known conservative book, The Great Philanthropist and the Problem of Donor Intent, Martin Morris Worcester, I wrote a letter to Worth, which the magazine printed, saying, I didn't write a, quote, conservative book. I think everyone should read my book. They printed it. One afternoon in 2003, I got a call from the Chicago Tribune's correspondent in Ankara. The MacArthur Foundation had been funding a group that had been interviewing Turf Tur Kurdish victims of the Turkish army and publishing these memoirs. The reporter told me that a leading Turkish newspaper had put my name on the front page and declared without asking me that I had written in this book that the MacArthur Foundation was a CIA front. <laughs> Whatever the MacArthur Foundation is, I said, I categorically deny that it is a CIA front. 
I don't, and I'd like to ask the issue of influence. What effect does my book have? I know the large foundations are aware of my work. I once called the MacArthur Foundation press office with a fact-checking question and was told, this isn't about donor intent, is it? It was. The big liberal foundations react to their past in different ways. The Carnegie Corporation of New York gives all sorts of prizes with Andrew Carnegie's name on them, but they completely ignore Carnegie's strong commitment to limited government. Carnegie was a very good writer, and I have no doubt if he were alive today, he would be giving to Heritage and other think tanks and appearing on panels. The Pew Charitable Trust, which have morphed from a foundation to a nonprofit, have claimed that there are many members of the Pew family on their board, and these family members reflexively agree with everything the organization does. They've also said that these family members refuse to be interviewed. Well, I don't need to talk to all the Pew family. Let me talk to one. I'll even treat Mr. or Ms. Pew to lunch. I have coupons. Finally, I must give credit to Ford Foundation President Darren Walker for reaching out to members of the Ford family who have been estranged from the foundation since Henry Ford II resigned from the board in 1977 and establishing an office for the foundation in Detroit. The foundation could do more, but at least it has done something. But I can reveal my book wasn't written to change the mind of any president or program officer or foundation funded in perpetuity. It was written to show the rising generation of donors the right way to give. That is to spend their money within their lifetimes or to establish a foundation that spends itself out within 25 years of a donor's death. Donor intent can be preserved in a perpetual foundation, and I have six case studies in my book that show how this happens, with the Hilton Foundation and the Daniels Fund being outstanding examples of foundations that do a good job in preserving donor intent. But without strenuous effort, mission drift in the foundation is inevitable and nearly always leads to liberals taking over control of an organization created by someone on the right. As I wrote in my 1989 Wall Street Journal piece, quote, conservatives make money and liberals spend it. I'll leave you with some advice that the Boston Globe made in 1924 after George Eastman, the greatest philanthropist never to set up a foundation, uh, gave some major grants. Few can endow great universities, the Globe wrote, but many can apply George Eastman's philosophy of giving. Invest in your own community and do so while your money can be put to work while you still live. Thank you. Well, thank you. Do I need to press this? Uh, thank you so much, Martin. Uh, that was uh, quite an amusing history of, of your book and, don't, and uh, the debates over donor intent. Uh, and I want to reinforce something that you said, that the the book really had, there are two aspects to the book. Am I right? That there is, on the one hand, there's a great deal of history of a lot yes. of the great donors and the, their, how they made their fortunes, what happened to their fortunes. But there's also very practical advice, uh, for people who have foundations or are considering setting up foundations of how to avoid the sort of disasters that Ford and Pew and Rockefeller and others have had. Right. That's, that's correct. I mean, Part of the book is looking at someone like Henry Ford or J. Howard Pugh. Well, let's say J. Howard Pugh, who is someone who is very clear and articulate about what he wanted. He, um, he stated very clearly that he was a conservative libertarian, um, he wanted his trust to fund causes that promoted limited government and traditional virtue. Um, he couldn't have done a better job of articulating what he wanted. But the Pew Trust ended up um, being taken over by people who were liberals who wanted... Um, the foundation to be a champion of liberalism, and they very much ignored what J. Howard Pugh believed. 
Um, the worst example is Albert Barnes, who it's my one case study of a foundation that doesn't involve liberals taking over a conservative foundation. Albert Barnes was an art collector. He was somebody politically who was between um, FDR and a communist. Uh, sort of whatever halfway between that is. Well, as I recall, didn't he support Leon Trotsky at one point? I think he did. He also wanted his fortune, the his endowment to be only invested in government bonds and railroad stocks so no one could say he was stealing from the government. And he was also a jerk. I mean, he was a horrible person. He uh, hired his secretaries to figure out how to forge his signature so he could deny something in court. And he was in court a lot. But they were his paintings, and he had a very clear vision of what he wanted. Um, the foundation, in effect, was the victim of a hostile takeover by the Pew, Lenfest, and Annenberg Foundations. It moved... Um, there's no reason for it to move, and all, nearly all of Barnes's many clauses about what he wanted were uh, nullified by the courts. I mean, he was someone who was the most articulate donor and the one whose vision was most totally destroyed. Yes, there's even a whole movie on that, as I recall, called uh, Barnes, The Art of the Steel, a documentary on the, the, the travesty of what was done. But you mentioned, um, you mentioned Ford uh, earlier. I mean, Pew, uh, J. Howard Pugh and uh, Mr. Barnes uh, did put down uh, fairly clear indications of what they wanted, but uh, a lot of the problems that crop up in your book don't even get that far, right? I mean, Henry Ford and uh, James MacArthur did not do a very good job of explaining what they wanted and didn't want. Is right, that right? Right. Um, many of the problems come from donors who leave no restrictions on how their money is spent in a perpetual foundation. John D. MacArthur, who think was pretty much of a conservative. He said on several occasions that he would leave to posterity how his foundation would be run. He also had a son who was both a liberal and really hated his father. Uh, there is one alleged story that I don't know it's true that they were once in a hotel room, and Rod MacArthur wanted to use the hotel phone. And John D. MacArthur said you had to use the one in the lobby because that's ten cents, whereas the hotel phone is twenty cents. <laughs> well, I, that, that wouldn't be unusual for right. there. There have been wealthy men who are very careful with their pennies, huh? Yes, yes. Uh, you buy me a beer, and I'll tell you my H.L. Hunt story. The uh, so there were uh, so sometimes it's not people are not specific at all and that's a problem. Yes, right. It, and then you also talked about uh, family members. So I, I have a I have a quick little um, machine gun set of questions for you. That can you just be uh, simple? Yes or no? Uh, if you are a donor worried about your legacy, planning your legacy, can you trust bankers? No. Can you trust accountants? No. Can you trust lawyers? Triple no. <laughs> Can you trust colleges, even your beloved alma mater? Quadruple no. <laughs> Can you trust your friends? Not really. Can you trust your family? Mostly no. <laughs> so, so I just wanted to get all that on the on the the record because as somebody, since I, I have to do fundraising from time to time myself. And when I, I always try to raise this critical topic of donor intent with them, and and when you ask people what they're planning, you often find that they sort of are assuming that some combination of these folks are going to be faithful uh, to their own donor intent, and the odds for any of those folks are not very good, are they? Right. And they're really low if you trust your family lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, <laughs> that's what John D. MacArthur did. One sign is that when the MacArthur Foundation was founded, it was staffed by people who knew him, Paul Harvey and his family lawyer. After a titanic and ridiculous internal battle, all of these board members, including William Simon, were booted, except for Paul Harvey and the family lawyer. And they were replaced by Libya. Um, the Rockefeller Foundation, one of the reasons they distanced themselves from John D. Rockefeller very quickly is because their family lawyer told them not to do it. The Carnegie Corporation, um, Andrew Carnegie created organizations with very specific missions, you know, as for example, the Carnegie Hero Fund, because he wanted to help people who were helped others but were victims of accidents and things like that. He was very proud to say, this was my idea, it wasn't brought to me. But he had half his money left and ran out of ideas, so he created the Carnegie Corporation of New York with no restrictions. Two years after he created, he tried to take some of the money out of the endowment to um, set up a British organization. He was told that um, this was irrevocable by the family lawyer who created um, the organization. So you should quadruply not trust them. Uh, well, um, let's let's move to uh, one or two of the happier stories in your book. Although this is the the segue to my first one would be uh, the Daniels Fund is really unusual because it uh, that's the, would be the largest foundation in Colorado, I believe, just about yes. one point two billion in assets these days. Uh, who, by the way, you you uh, I'm very proud of this. You cannot be a Daniels Fund board member or a Daniels Fund staffer unless you sign an affidavit that you have read Martin's book because that's how passionate they are about donor intent now. But they had a donor intent problem, and it arose because of the uh, one of Mr. Daniels' uh, professional uh, – I don't think – it wasn't the lawyer. I think it was the uh, – I think it was the accountant, but – was one of the professionals, right? He was an accountant for the Daniels Fund. What what happened was Mr. Daniels was a conservative. He was a prominent Republican. He ran as a Republican for governor of Colorado and lost. He hired Neil Bush, who is George W. Bush's brother, to run his Houston office for a couple of years. He had a list of things that he wanted the fund to do. In fact, uh, the Daniels Fund has an endorsement from the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy, which is a leading liberal think tank because they admired his way that they deal directly with poverty fighting through all sorts of different ways. But his problem was after he died, uh, Control ended up with a guy who was the accountant. It was also set up in perpetuity, and people didn't know that uh, the problems of a foundation in perpetuity. They also ended up giving program officers who they were very well credentialed, who came from the best schools and were all liberals, they gave them too much power. They said that you can give grants up to $100,000 without notifying the board, and you can reject grants without uh, telling us. So they had two examples were that they rejected grants to the Boy Scouts because the program officers were bothered at the time that the Boy Scouts wouldn't admit homosexuals, even though Bill Daniels really loved the Boy Scouts. The classic case, which Evan Sparks reported in Philanthropy Magazine, 
Bill Daniels was a guy who was a naval aviator in World War II. He got the Navy Cross. I think he got the Navy Cross. Um, he and was an ace, right? He was an ace. He he downed eighteen Japanese planes. The National Air and Space Museum uh, went to the Daniels Fund for a grant. They were turned down because they said the Daniels Fund does not support weapons of war. They then found out the airplanes that Mr. Daniels flew and said, well, we'd like to preserve these airplanes. And they were told that they can't do that because the Daniels Fund does not support or uh, projects that honor people killing people. Um, in 2003, and again, this is only three years after the donor's death, the foundation ended up um, having a crisis, and most of the program officers were sacked. There were only two exceptions on the board. One was Mr. Hogue, the accountant, the other was the only Daniels family member, Diane Dennish, who was a liberal Democrat who lost uh, the New Mexico governor's race to Susana Martinez in 2010. But they man, but they really try very hard to make sure that their funds go for things that Mr. Daniels wanted. You know, they were very specific in that. And another good example is the Hilton Foundation. I don't think there's ever been a crisis in the Hilton Foundation, but, I mean, there was... No, that'll take too much time to explain. Let, let's just say that uh, their board members all have to sign documents saying that they honor... Conrad Hilton's wishes, and I think there's a clause that said, quote, in, uh, including his conservative beliefs, and there's also a clause that says a majority of family members or majority of the board have to be family members. I think they do a pretty good job in that respect, but that's highly unusual in a family foundation. Um, a counterexample in bad foundations is the Packard Foundation. Uh, the short version is that David Packard was a conservative, although former AEI president Chris DeMuth, who was very helpful in, in giving me an interview, said, you know, a Northern California conservative, so sort of libertarian and maybe a little off the mark on environmental issues and population control. His three daughters run the Packard Foundation, and they essentially kept his non-political grants and threw out all his political ones. His conservative son was allowed to secede with 11% of the Packard Endowment, he funds projects that are culturally conservative, as in the Packard campus where the Library of Congress has their film archive. That's him. Um, but again, he only got 11%. He didn't get a quarter. Yeah, that's not unusual. There are, there are other foundations like that where, uh, where a rebel, uh, family member causes enough of a stir to be paid paid off to go away but almost never with a reasonable portion of the of the initial endowment uh especially since 100% of it really probably should go to the conservative if you were following the, the donor's actual intent well i wanted to ask you about another one of the uh, the stories in in part two. you know part 1 of the book is the the classic horror stories ford rockefeller pew uh barnes Part two are some of the happier stories, um, like the Daniels Fund that we mentioned, which managed to go back to donors' intent thanks to its board. Um, and but there's also in that section uh, the happy story of the the uh, Duke Endowment and 
uh, that has some, uh, probably a couple of interesting lessons, right? Could you tell us a bit about that? I mean, the original Duke was pretty good about spelling out his intent, and he also narrowed it not just in uh, the types of giving, but uh, geographically, I believe. Right. Um, here you have to contrast James Buchanan Duke with Doris Duke, his only child. Um, James Buchanan Duke, when he set up the Duke Endowment, was very specific about what he wanted his money spent on. He said it would only be used to fund projects in North and South Carolina, because that's where his money came from, first from tobacco, and then from a company that ultimately became Duke Energy. Um, he listed the percentages that the, fu- the endowment would fund each year. You know, 32% has to go to Duke University. 24% has to go to hospitals. 10% has to go to support retired ministers. And I think they have to be retired Methodist ministers. Um, single digits have to go to support Furman University, Johnson C. Smith University, and Davidson College. Um, you know, he couldn't have, and the foundation has drifted somewhat, but not as far as it could have because they can't, um, violate these percentages. The only thing that they did do was divest themselves of most of their holdings in Duke University, in Duke Energy. Um, but that's something a lot of foundations had to do. Um, Doris Duke, by contrast, didn't leave good instructions. The first president of the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation said, we don't know what she wanted, so we had to try to figure it out. We know that she liked the environment, so we have to do something about that. And she liked dance. So we have to do something like that. But her will, which was the subject of immensely complicated probate battles, at one point in 1996, there were 100 motions where somebody was suing somebody over something over that will. But, and she also at one point had as her executor her butler, which is not a good idea. I don't think anyone else tried to trust their butlers, but she did. Um, in any case, you know, if the president of a foundation says, we can't figure out what the donor wanted, that's not a good sign. The most recent battle over this, uh, Doris Duke had four houses. Her house in Rhode Island is a museum. No, she had three houses. Her house in Rhode Island is a museum. Her house in Hawaii as a museum of Islamic art. She left no instructions for what to do with her house in New Jersey, the one that she grew up in, uh, the one that her father built. Um, So it's now torn down because the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation thinks it's better to have it as sort of wild land for some environmental reason. Uh, I think a foundation that tries to honor donor intent by tearing down the donor's house, that's all you need to know. (laughs) Well, uh, I think it's worth uh, pointing out that many of these stories, and certainly many of the ones in your book, talk about the the way that a conservative donor has his uh, intent disregarded, but, but donor intent isn't simply an issue just for conservatives, because you, you already mentioned the Barnes case where a, a sort of Trotskyite-type fellow uh, had his in, intent not respected. And then uh, more recently, I know Nell Newman, who was one of Paul Newman's daughters, was complaining with some plausibility that uh, her dad's intent wasn't being respected, and he, of course, was a big Hollywood liberal. Um, who are some of the other 
non-conservatives who've taken an interest either in donor intent or in your suggested strategies of giving while living and spend down? Right. Well, the best example is the Atlantic Philanthropies edited by a man who I don't think allows people to call him Charles, so I'll say Chuck Feeney. Uh, Mr. Feeney made his money through duty-free stores. Um, He created the company, and in 1996, they sold it to LVMH, the French conglomerate, and then they discovered he was worth They discovered that at that time he had set up a foundation in Bermuda because he was taught that the best way to give was anonymously, and the only way to make sure his grants were anonymous was through uh, a Bermuda foundation. This has led to the Atlantic Philanthropies doing some bad things like supporting political lobbying because they're in... Bermuda and can do it, and CRC researchers have shown the problems that they have. Um, But Feeney is somebody who is a strong supporter of donor intent, who there was a crisis foundation drifted away a bit in about 2010, and he was put back in charge, and He's somebody who believes that uh, foundations should have term limits and Atlantic has is spending itself out by 2020. Um, the best example in history is Julius Rosenwald, who by 1920s standards was a liberal. <laughs> Uh, he's somebody who, uh, he also wrote a very important article in the Atlantic in 1929 calling on donors to set up foundations with term limits. A lot of donors at the time did what was called optional. Well, I'm trying to remember what the exact term was, but they said that their board could spend themselves down if they so chose. Surprisingly, none of these foundations spent themselves down. The best example was Edward Filene, who's Filene's department stores and set up the 20th Century Fund uh, and said, it is my wish that after January 15th, 1947, that the board start to spend down my money. He didn't say the board will spend it down. He said, it's my wish that they do it. So they didn't do it. And in fact, the 20th Century Fund outlived the 20th Century and is now the Century Foundation. Uh, other, the Markle Foundation is one of those. Um, but the Rosenwald um Example is a good one, and his children, grandchildren, and no, I think it ends with grandchildren. No, it all set up foundations with term limits. And in fact, one of his grandchildren was Philip Stern, and I edited his last book, so I dealt with him as an editor. Um, he was a guy who was a liberal, but he had the hardcover of his book published by Pantheon and the paperback by Regnery because he didn't like Congress very much. Um, But yeah, the thing is that both Bill Gates and I may be the only person in this room to say something nice about Michael Bloomberg. They've all declared that their foundations have term limits. There's a rising number of donor, uh, donors who understand that the way to make sure their money is spent the way that they want is with a term limit. And this includes Warren Buffett. I mean, Warren Buffett said, I trust Bill Gates. Bill Gates and I are simpatico. Um, you know, spend it the way you want. 
And I wrote a piece about this. I And I'll say I've never gotten money from the Gates Foundation or asked for it. But the moment where someone says, good Lord, here's this giant pot of money, and it's controlled by three people, Bill Gates, Melinda Gates, and Warren Buffett. Aren't you shocked? I said, no, it makes good sense to me. Well, those are great examples of uh, of non-conservatives who care about the, the donor intent and, and spend down. And I would throw in there, you mentioned Atlantic Philanthropies. The, the donor whose money created Atlantic Philanthropies was Chuck Feeney of Duty Free Shipping. But for a number of years, he had as his top staffer, Gera LaMarche, who came from the Soros Foundation and now is back with Soros running uh, the Democracy Alliance, which is the, the, the donor group that... Uh, Soros and a few others uh, had set up for, for left-wing giving, and he too is an enthusiast. So uh, that leads me to my next question, which is, if it's so obvious that this is not simply a conservative issue, uh, all donors of whatever political stripe have their intent and, and, and can recognize maybe that foundations, if they are perpetual, are likely to get very bureaucratic and inefficient and whatever they're supposed to be doing. Uh, why is it that... Uh, just in the last year or so, there was a very prominent thought leader in philanthropy who brought out a book that seemed to be mainly designed to attack donor intent. Can you tell us a bit about who that was in his book? And his book was Joel Fleischman, who teaches at Duke University. It was called Putting Wealth to Work. Um, I think the problem is the people who believe in perpetual foundations usually work for perpetual foundations, and they like to preserve their jobs. Um, Professor Fleischman, um, who wrote a book attacking donor intent without mentioning me, um, which I think shows his intellectual honesty, um... I think there's a rising concern among foundations that the gravy train won't last forever. Um, something I would bring out, in 2011, the Carnegie Corporation of New York had their centennial, and The Economist had a piece where they noted that IBM and the Carnegie Corporation were founded in the same year, which done more good for the they pointed out IBM has gone through a lot of change. You know, they started off with hardware and big iron and blue suits and think, and they're now a consulting company. I think they changed their mission at least twice, but they're still around and they're still a very big company and they're much bigger than Carnegie Corporation, which the economist pointed out because it was perpetual and nobody has to worry about their jobs. Um, doesn't really do very much. And it's not very large because they invest to preserve their endowment, but not really to increase it. Um, so, yeah. So they're, they're, the big bureaucracies are a problem in all sectors, it sounds yes. like. Um, well, I want to, uh, uh, we're getting toward the end, and I want to reinforce again that uh, your book has, on the one hand, Lots of fascinating history. It's always fascinating to see how these uh, these corporate titans have built their wealth. And it's also fascinating to see the family intrigues and the rest for what happens after they're gone. Um, but the third part of the book is the the practical, and the uh, it ends with a chapter on the two best strategies for preserving your legacy. And obviously, one is the spend down that we've been talking about, where if you're going to start a foundation. You, you give it a limited life from the beginning, but the other is, uh, is just giving while living. And can you help us understand, uh, why it can be really valuable for a donor not to do what John D. MacArthur did, which was, uh, basically say, I'm not going to give any of it away. It's yours. When, when I'm dead, it's yours and you figure it out. Why, what is the, some of the virtues of the giving while living? Because of course, you don't have to set up a foundation at all, right? You could you could do giving while living, and then you could leave uh, the remaining money to the grantees that you've identified as doing some of the best work. Well, that's what George Eastman did. Uh, George Eastman, let me get the numbers right. 
Um, if Andrew Carnegie gave away $300 million, George Eastman gave away 125 He had no staff. He gave a lot of money to causes in Rochester. And at the end of his life, he said, everyone who comes to me with his hand stretched wants a handout. Um, I think the example is this. Suppose you have somebody in your community who is doing a good job in fighting poverty, say a rescue mission, and they could really use $100. And you tell them, well, uh, we can't give you $100 because we need to preserve our capital for future generations. By law, foundations have to give 5% of their endowment each year, so we'll give you $5, and in 30 years we'll give you another $5. That isn't being generous. I mean, there are a lot of causes that could use your money now, and All donors, if they have, say, a 25-year time span, will find something that's worth doing with their money. The John Olin Foundation is a good example because Mr. Olin said that he wanted his money spent out within 10 years of his death. Um, the Olin Foundation did a lot more and acted like it was a foundation a lot larger than it is. I think they only gave away 125, no, I don't know the exact number. If you see John Miller's book, A Gift of Freedom, you can read it there, and that's an excellent book. But the Olin Foundation because they were interested in influencing ideas now rather than making sure there'd be jobs at their foundation in 25 years was much more influential than they could have been if they had preserved their wealth. I think that's a case with a lot of foundations. You know, there are causes that need your money now and it's better for you as the living donor to put your money to good use while you're alive rather than hoping that people might remember you when you're dead and they might do something in your name, but they probably won't. But... You know, people in nonprofit management courses need jobs, so there'll be lots of jobs for them. And, um, you know, I don't think people who have nonprofit management degrees need to be on welfare, so. <laughs> That's reasonable, Martin. Well, we have just a few minutes left. I wanted to, to see if anybody uh, in the audience uh, had any questions for Martin. Please identify yourself, if you would, and um, yeah, get the microphone. Very sure. Good. Peter Lipset from Donors Trust, and appreciate the book. We've shared it with a number of people and just continue to get really great feedback on it. My question goes back to Pew, and when, when particularly the one was so explicit about incorporating free enterprise and limited government into the covenants, how do they – did they ultimately just wipe away the covenants and pretend it's not there, or did they just keep it there – and pretend it's not there. Um, first off, remember there were seven pew trusts, and only two of the pews were articulate about what they believed. I know that the other five were Republicans, but I don't know much about their philosophies. Um, all I know is that the Pew Charitable Trust became a nonprofit. They are a 501c3. They did this because they convinced the IRS that they had contributions from seven donors, which were the seven trusts, and the IRS bought it. I don't know, because I'm not a lawyer, what happened to the restrictions in the Pew Freedom Trust. I, I, I don't know. Yes. There in the back. 
there's another aspect to this for donor advised funds, which is a little less than foundations, but um, you can give your money every year to a donor advised fund, get the tax donation, and then never have to give out money from your donor advised fund. I mean, it's already charitable, but it sits there. Uh, do you, can you comment on that, or do you know anything? Um, I don't know that much. I just, I support tax deductions, but I don't support money sitting there that isn't put to good use. I mean, what donors should be doing is be activists and be involved and have ideas. I mean, one thing about donor intent is having lots of donors with lots of different ideas is better than having a lot, a few donors with no ideas and a lot of vague liberal foundations who can meet at the council and foundations and tell each other how wonderful they are and not do very much. Um, my favorite example is there was a donor who left money to the San Francisco Opera because he wanted them to have soda during intermission and not just booze. And there was a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle who said, oh my God, what's the matter with this? This is the height of frivolity. Well, I don't know. Why not? Give an idea and see if it works. And if it works, that's great. I mean... One thing about donors' trust is if you look at the things that people give their money to, a lot of them aren't political. There are lots of wildlife sanctuaries and little leagues. And I remember the one time when I wrote about Whitney Ball's death, I said uh, there was a San Antonio ice skating league that, the donors trust gave money to and I said some heavy breathing leftists will conclude this is a front for big oil or something and, you know who knows but what the idea is is just have lots of donors with lots of ideas who are very passionate that's the ultimate goal of donor intent um, And most donor advised fund places give out far more than 5%, which is all that foundations are legally required to do. But I, I would throw a quick warning that the, com the big commercial ones like Fidelity, Vanguard, Schwab, they may end up becoming politically correct. There's rumblings that they might uh, take the Southern Poverty Law Center's hate group listings and refuse to give your money to Family Research Council or Center for Security Policy and uh, other people very unreasonably put on the hate group list. So I, I would say that things like Donors Trust, where you know that they're going to give your money only to uh, to good causes, uh, is not an unreasonable way to try to protect uh, donor intent. Right. I'll just say that keep CRC is continuing to watch this. I don't know as much about donor advised funds as I should. Okay. I see another questioner. Have you um, interviewed or researched uh, any of the geniuses uh, recognized by the MacArthur Foundation? That's in a book I wrote called Great Philanthropic Mistakes. Um, however, you can find that chapter online because my book was excerpted in commentary. So you can look it up and see what I wrote. I... Um, I just learned that recipients of the MacArthur Fellowships are told never call it a genius grant, even though that's what Rod MacArthur thought he was doing with the money. That's an accurate description of what he wanted, and he thought up the idea of genius grants. And also, they're told this a month before they're made public and said you can only tell one other person. So the idea that the geniuses are just sitting there being creative and then the call comes, it uh, doesn't happen that way. Let me uh, ask you about tax law. Uh, what role does tax law 
play in people's decisions to a set up foundations uh, uh, or b decline to give the money uh, away personally? First off, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, second, um, the classic case where this happens is with the Ford Foundation. The Ford Motor Company was not a corporation. It was a partnership. Uh, in 1934, uh, Congress had an estate tax of like 90%. Henry Ford thought with some justification it was aimed at him. And they, uh, the Ford Foundation was set up because the estate could pay Etzel Ford's estate taxes or Henry Ford's, but not both of them. And since Etzel Ford died before Henry Ford, that would have been left with a problem. So that was a case where tax law played a role. Um, other than that, I really don't know. I mean, George Eastman, of course, gave his money in the 20s before uh, estate taxes became punitive. But I think I'll just have to punt and say that's the one example I know. Let, let, me, let me follow up with perhaps a more specific um, uh, question pointing at this. The, uh, Bill Gates um, started a company that um, would uh, today one would say that if broadband was extended everywhere in the country, like telephones were at one point in time, uh, Bill Gates's invention would benefit lots more people in the United States of America. Could the Gates Foundation, in the interest of not only helping his his company, where he still, I'm sure, is making money from the investments, but also his idea of helping poor people. Um, would would his would his ideas and his goals be benefited if the Gates Foundation said instead of lobbying Washington and government to extend broadband everywhere in the country, why don't we just do it? Is that something that uh, that one who has wealth and a foundation could do to advance causes they say they believe in? Um, I thought the Gates Foundation originally did that with all their grants to libraries. The problem is, um, along with the uh, E-rate uh, program of the FCC, that most people have broadband and don't need subsidies. I. I think they started off doing it, but shifted to other things simply because that was a requirement that was already filled. Um, I think they could do it, but they also don't spend most of their money in the U.S., except for education issues and... I reckon, you know, if you wanted to talk about Gates and Common Core, I can do that. But I, I, I don't think they fund grants that support the products of Microsoft anymore, but they started off doing that in their first five years. Okay, other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, thank you, Gavin Carter, Gavin Carson Associates. Um, I, uh, I work in the environmental field quite a lot, so I see a lot of the harm that is done by the money that goes from foundations like Pew. And I, I'm wondering if you, if you could comment on some of the, the harm that is done, because it seems like you know, it, it's not just limited to the states. It happens all over the world. This money um, from the U.S. foundations is spent on causes around the world, which many of which are, are really politically disastrous. And I wondered if uh, if you know of work that's been done on that, or you would like to comment, or whether this is a, a research for for the future. Um, well, the work that's done on that was a book by Rupert Darwall called Green Tyranny. So if you don't know that book. 
read that and then ask me questions. Um, he did a pretty good job looking at the large American foundations spending on environmental issues. Um, I know some things, but on that, I defer to him. I would just add that if you go to capitalresearch.org and uh, click on the Green Watch uh, tab, you will find a great deal of research on the various environmentalists causing trouble, not just in this country, but actually almost all of the environmental movement in Canada is a wholly owned subsidy of the Pews, the Fords, the Hewlett's, the Packard's uh, in this country. So Rupert Darwall, excellent book. We've had him here. It's one you should definitely have. And now, if it, let me just uh, reiterate your point about capital research, and that's capital with an A. Yes. Capitalresearch.org. Yes. Very good. We thank you for having Martin as a fellow. We thank you, Martin, for doing such a great uh, update on this important work. We thank you all for being here and for watching. And with that, we'll adjourn. Thank you very much.